following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. And good morning. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. And we are talking with some fabulous fungi people today. And uh, we're going to be talking with Alison Puglio, who is a mycologist, natural historian and photographer. And she's going to be chatting about her new book, Underground Lovers. And uh, that is a wonderful journey she's made studying mushrooms all over the world in fungi forests. And she's going to talk about how humans are deeply entwined with the subterrane of the fungi and sharing the stories from the Australian desert to Iceland's glaciers and America's Cascade Mountains. And also joining us via phone and joining the conversation is Peter Wenzel, who is a mushroom designer and grower. What a title that is. And he is the co-founder of Fungico. And along with his partner, Leonie McGlashan and sister Nina Wenzel, uh, they have co-founded Fungi Co, which is all about uh, education around fungi, form and function. They've also got something with um, mushroom leather they're teaching kids in the fashion program at CIT. So there's um, a lot of really interesting things going on there with Fungi Co. So we'd like to welcome you both to the show. So welcome, Alison, and welcome, Peter. Can you hear each other? Indeed. Nice to chat with you, Alison. It's been ages. Indeed. Thanks for having me. I think it's actually been about two and a half years, if my um, notes are correct, since we've had you both on the show together. Well, I guess... Yeah. Peter, before we begin the show, there's a really important thing I have to ask you. Are you wearing your mushroom shirt right now? Well, sadly, no. Okay, because I think every time I've chatted with you, you've had this fabulous mushroom shirt on, and we actually put a picture of you up on our Facebook page wearing that shirt, so people can see what it looks like if they're curious. So I guess the first thing is, you know, I guess it's maybe it's one of those questions that sort of answers itself. But what got you both into fungi, into mycology, and who would like to take that one first? Maybe Alison. Sure. So, for me, it's, it's all a bit, it's not just the fungi, I guess, crawling around the bush as a child, noticing everything, whether it was the mosses or the sundews or the beetles, but the fungi held a particular kind of allure, and I, I think that their nature of being so ephemeral, that they're there and they disappeared and manifested all these curious forms in strange places, so I guess for me, initially, the interest was aesthetic, they were so, not just beautiful, ah, you know, strange and and that led me to the science, to wanting to understand what they're actually doing and what they do in ecosystems, how they help hold them together. So it's been a, a very long interest for me. That's fantastic. And you're also a photographer. So how did the transition from looking at fungi just as, with fascination go into photographing fungi, which is quite an art in itself? Yeah, well, I guess, again, that started pretty young with a camera in my hand at about the age of seven. And then... You know, you look at those photos and they stimulate your curiosity and you think, why does this one, you know, have an umbrella shape and why is this one a puffball and why is this one a jelly sitting on a log? And I guess I've never really seen the aesthetics and the science of fungi as being separate, even though we often get siloed off into the sciences or the art. I think they both complement each other and they both reveal particular things about each other. So, yeah, they've always been a unison for me. 
Mm, fantastic. And Peter, what started your journey towards um, being fascinated with fungi? Look, not dissimilar in some ways. I mean, I have very fond memories as a child of yeah, the moss and the sundews and uh, all the fungi in the bush. And when I when I was little, I thought it would be great to have a a, a mushroom zoo one day to show people. Uh, a mushroom zoo. I've never heard that expression before. I think that that's that's a first. <laughs> yeah, as I transitioned into sort of. Uh, mushrooms vocationally sort of in labs and mushroom farming and research I thought ultimately that was a silly idea but then I've come full circle and I think one day I should have a mushroom zoo Fantastic and is that what you classify fungi co as a mushroom zoo? Yeah something like that it's a beginning we do, we do a lot of science education and displays as you mentioned sort of you know li- living living sculptures with fungi and that sort of thing so it's all part of the mix Right, and you have a program which we can talk about a bit more later where you inoculate logs and actually um, grow sort of mushroom crops from those as well. So that, that's, I guess, the whole breeding program that goes with the zoo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess um, while we've got you, Alison, um, tell us about your latest book. Okay, so the, the latest one under Grand Lovers is narrative nonfiction. So what that means is I tell both the science and the culture of fungi through a series of stories situated in different places around the world. So the new book takes us from the mighty Murray, the Dungala, working with the Yorta Yorta aunties down to southern Tasmania, up to Arnhem Land. So throughout Australia, across the ditch to New Zealand, where I work with some Māori people, then over to Iceland, where I work with some rangers over there looking at fungi, across to the Swiss Alps, over to the Pacific Northwest. So it covers quite a big ge- geographical area. And with this book, because there's been quite a few new popular science books on fungi come out in the last few years, mostly out of America and the UK, which is absolutely wonderful to see this new genre of micro-lit, but I wanted to choose themes that hadn't been covered, and I realised there was some particular gaps. For example, there's nothing I've seen written in these books on the Aboriginal and Māori knowledge of fungi. There's nothing written on the history of women in mycology and the fact that we've got some wonderful honorary mycologists, women mycologists in Australia who've discovered dozens of different species and contributed enormously to the field. And then something, as I mentioned earlier, such as that interesting intersection between aesthetics, science and the conservation of fungi. So I guess I tried to expand the, the geographical range compared to previous books, but also look at some themes that haven't really been addressed in the fungal world. And what are some of the different ways that you've seen different cultures approaching fungi? So I guess... Oh, look, in, sorry. Go yeah, on. go, go. There you go. Oh, I was thinking in our culture, the Western European culture, they're often demonised a bit. Yeah, absolutely. For a long time there was a bit of a dichotomy, what we call you know, mycophobia and mycophilia, the fear and the love of fungi. However, I think there's a much bigger... You know, it's not quite as defined as that. And traditionally, a lot of English-speaking cultures weren't quite as enamoured with fungi as, say, the continental Europeans or some Asian cultures. But we are in something of a bit of a a fungal turn, or fungal awakening, I guess, here in Australia, where people are recognising not just their great utility in terms of, you know, all the great work that Peter's doing, education, growing them as food, but also bioengineering and people using them in the arts to choreograph dances and they've been written into fiction, all kinds of things. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time and I think that we are waking up a bit more to how important they are ecologically but also all these other entry points compared to, say, the Europeans who have much longer histories of particularly of foraging fungi. So I think we're fast catching up. <laughs> mm. 
you spent some time in the Pacific Northwest, which is famous for the morel mushroom, and that's Indeed. a really big foraging culture. Like I used to live on the west coast of Canada, and I remember mushroom season and the mushroom pickers coming in to the forest to forage, and then the mushroom buyers, you know, would meet them at this little shack, and these you know fabulous mushrooms would come from these wild forests in the Pacific Northwest and end up on a dinner plate at some fancy restaurant in in Vancouver or Seattle or somewhere like that. So. What is it about the foraging part of it that, um, for you, like where did that journey take you and where's your favourite place to kind of forage and, and, and discover fungi on that journey? Oh, look, you're right. The Pacific Northwest is just astonishing and they're probably, you know, 30, 40 years ahead of us in the sense that we don't have that culture of foraging in Australia. And there's, there's, one, there's one very big reason why we don't actually, and that is compared to America and Europe, you actually are allowed to forage on public land, but it's not legal to do that in Australia. So that, that's a difference to start with, because biodiversity, including flora, fauna and fungi, is protected at three levels of government in Australia. So personally, I'm actually more of a forayer than a forager. Mm. I'm always happy to, you know, it's something wonderful about not continually supporting the monopoly of, you know, <laughs> our supermarkets to bring that mushroom home. But my interest is probably, I guess, foremost as a photographer and an ecologist of fungi, more so than a forager. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I do like to, you know, have that mushroom bring it home to have from the dinner plate, but my interest is more an ecological and an aesthetic one. Right, because you, you photographed some really rare and unusual mushrooms. Like you, I believe you took pictures of the ghost mushroom, the elusive ghost mushroom. Yeah, so the ghost mushroom is a wonderful challenge to photograph, although interestingly, it's not actually rare at all. It's quite common. And the thing is, we don't tend to see it glow because few of us wander around the bush at night. But the, the best way to photograph uh, ghost fungi is to go during the daytime and spot them while you've got light so you don't slide down a wombat hole at night and then to go back to that spot at night because you have to have complete darkness. You need a, a moonless night and, and no torch or anything so you have that rubber long exposure just using the light from the fungus itself. So ghost fungi are pretty common. I mean, they grow on lots of different types of wood. You'll very co- commonly find them on the stumps in Pinus radiata plantations, our pine plantations. So, so that's something you might even see in Canberra? Would that be likely? You could go to a pine plantation in Canberra and maybe look for I them? I think there's a good chance, yeah. And, and they do look very similar to the oyster mushrooms, the ones we produce commercially. So they have those lovely, lovely long radiating lamellae on the underside. They don't have that stem sitting in the middle of the cap. It tends to attach to the edge. So they, I'm sure listeners are very familiar with that classic oyster-shaped form. But keep in mind that ghost fungi, while they're, they're stunning to observe and photograph, they do have a very potent emetic, which means they'll cause you to throw up. So these are ones to enjoy looking at. And so no, no touching. <laughs> Not to, well, you can touch them. No problem at all to touch them, but don't consume them. Right. Um, and it, they're bioluminescent, right? So is, is that something that you find in a lot of fungi or is that a rare occurrence? Look, that, that quality, you're right, is a rare thing. So we don't have very many bioluminescent fungi in temperate Australia. There's a few more up in the tropics. And, I mean, what's interesting, we've known about bioluminescence in other organisms, particularly marine organisms, oh, for a long, long time. Well, that goes back to Aristotle. That's, that's been observed for a very long time. But fungi have different compounds that cause them to bioluminesce. And the really interesting thing, unlike, say, a deep-sea fish that has a little bioluminescent lantern positioned very conveniently within gulping distance of, what, you know, of the prey. Yeah, they're fascinating, aren't they, those fish? Yeah, but fungi, we don't really know why. And this is a really curious thing. We thought perhaps it was to do with trying to attract a, a nocturnal vector, that is, 
another organism that can help distributed spores, mm-hmm. but some studies have shown that's not actually the case. So the jury's still out to as to why these fungi actually bioluminate. Interesting. Is it a, like a life cycle thing, like a sort of a chemical release as part of its transition and its life cycle? Yeah, look, this is kind of, I guess, uh, the unsexy scientific answer is it's what we call a secondary metabolite. Mm-hmm. That means a, a byproduct of another chemical reaction, although I do like the explanation of a five-year-old friend of mine who said it was to help wombats find their way through the bush at night. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. There's a kid's storybook in that one. I, I know there is. <laughs> yeah. So, Alison, you've, you've spent some time at the Swiss Office of Mushroom Inspectors. Yeah, I mean, isn't this just the most fabulous phenomenon? I wish we had them here in Australia. I mean, it's just amazing. They've been going for over a 100 years, and this is a a group of particularly kooky and erudite people who have this amazing knowledge of fungi. So you can go in with your basket of foraged fungi, they'll pluck out the toxic one and send you home with your lovely basket full of edible species. And, <laughs> oh, we need I mean, some of that here. I know. It's just so incredible. And I've learned so much over the last two decades just observing what species people bring in, which ones are they mixing up and why do they mix them up. So it really helps to understand where people are making errors. Is it to do with how they smell a mushroom? Are they not detecting particular scents or do they not recognise the tree species it's associated with? So, you know, it's an amazing service. And, you know, Switzerland's a tiny country. It's only a bit over half the size of Tassie, but there's 409 mushroom inspection offices. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, this is the place that they've got CERN, right? So they've got the um, quantum accelerator there. So they're pretty, pretty ahead of things in Switzerland. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, CERNs are also a really sort of fascinating hyperspace to visit, but I still think the mushroom inspection offices are pretty up there. (laughs) Oh, I love it. The mushroom inspection office trumps CERN. That's just brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so um, I do know, Alison, that you are on a tight time frame. When we originally asked you on the show, we'd hoped to have you on for the whole show, but you um, have been overbooked by your publisher. You've got apparently seven media interviews lined up or something and also a seven-hour drive ahead of you today. So how long how long can we keep you on the line or do you need to get going? Because we have had you for the 20 minutes that we had promised. Oh, happy to talk for a few more minutes. That's absolutely fine. Okay, wonderful. Okay, well, if, we, if we could have you till about 9.30, that would be wonderful sure. for us. Fantastic. Mm. So what were some of the things that you learned from talking with First Nations people in Australia about fungi? Look, this is, I guess it's like talking about any sort of ethno, ethno-botanical or ethno-mycological that is human use of fungi is, a lot of this knowledge has gone. So when someone's prohibited from speaking their language, from doing their dances that pass on that knowledge, from the words of the various, from the mouths of the people I've spoken with, including Jajawarung, Wiradjuri, Yorta Yorta, Yongu, a lot of this knowledge, of course, just has not been passed down. But we certainly do know that fungi have been used as food. For example, truffles, they're fungi that produce their sporing bodies underground were hunted or tracked down by women who'd poke a Aboriginal woman who'd poke a stick into the sand and smell the end of the stick to detect those very pungent odours that the truffles release. We also know various species of polypores, that is fungi that grow like a bracket on the side of a tree or on wood, have all kinds of different antibiotics and antibacterials that they use to, for curing things such as ulcers in the mouth and cuts in the mouth and giving to children as a teething ring. We also know that uh, they're even used in body decoration. So the spores of some puffballs were used in to, to grey the, 
the sorry to darken the graying whiskers of Aboriginal men. So there is there are some uses there, but and I've had the most incredible time working out on country with various groups. But it seems we're we're actually still trying to track and trace some of those fragments of knowledge is still out there. And there's a group of wonderful Yorta Yorta aunties actually on the Murray on the Dungala who are trying to. I think it's the first ethno-mycological project among Aboriginal people in Australia to try and see what knowledge remains. So early days yet, but hopefully they'll uncover something. Mm, that is amazing. So the other thing that um, is quite interesting about fungi, they tend to appear after a fire, I've heard, and we had those horrendous bushfires in 2019, 2020. So what have you noticed since that time with the, the fungi coming back and helping to repair the environment? Okay, so some fungi are known as being pyrophilus, that means fire-loving or phoenicious, as in phoenix, the bird that rose from the ashes. And these fungi are stimulated in some way to respond to fire. So it could be to do with chemical changes in the soil or the reduced competition from other species in the soil. And they can be some of the first organisms that you'll see reappear after fire. Often they're little tiny cup or disc fungi that appear like this coating on the surface. However, like plants and animals, generally speaking, fire will destroy most fungi within an area. So if you think about where fungi inhabit, it's that top sort of 50, 60 centimetres of the organic matter or the top soil layer. That's where most of the mycelium, the actual fungus organism itself, inhabits. And so when we do get a fire, particularly a really hot fire, most of that gets destroyed. I mean, some fungi, they think, move the mycelium moves further down into the soil and that might be less exposed to the change in temperature. And certainly, you know, our systems are resilient. They recover after fire. Birds and animals will bring spores in and lichen fragments will blow in. But generally speaking, fire will remove most fungi, as it will, as same with plants and animals. Some are adapted to cope with fire, but the great majority aren't. And if the more intensity is generally the more damage and the longer it takes for them to return. Mm. So how important is it for the fungi to return before the forest can start to regrow after a fire? Is it a, sort of a, a sequential thing where if there's no fungi, the, the regrowth is affected? Look, there certainly is a succession, as you suggest, like some things are required to be there before the next things can move in. But often you'll find there'll be a a composite, for example, the idea of what they call a cryptogamic crust or a soil crust, it's not just fungi, but there'll be other little things called bryophytes, such as mosses and liverworts and things that will occur together. And so this sort of, I guess, like, again, it's like a film over the surface of different organisms. So some fungi, you know, the first thing they do, they're, they're actually putting that architecture back in the soil with their mycelium. They're trapping bits and bits of moisture. So if a bird flies over and excretes a seed, if that seed lands on the ground, it's actually got a bit of moisture, a bit of protection, a bit of nutrient supply. But yeah, look, there's just so little fire research on fungi in Australia, so we're still putting these pieces of the jigsaw together. Hmm. Um, I know that we've got a limited time here, so we do have a question that's come in from a listener. Um, sure. And feel free if this is a bit above and beyond sort of your area of study. But um, this is from Simi Clergy Gree, and they are talking about microdizing certain strains of mushrooms for treating anxiety, panic attack, and depression and cluster headaches. Um, have you heard about using mushrooms to treat those conditions? Yeah, wow. So medical mycology is a whole other field. I'm more an, an ecologist looking at fungi and ecology. But there is a fantastic organisation called Entheogenesis Australis. And if you look that up online, they're doing a lot of the research using particularly psychotropic fungi such as psilocybe to treat all kinds of conditions. There's a lot of researchers listed on that website, a lot of resources. So I'd recommend that could be a really good place to start and then hopefully that will lead to some 
some further information. But at the moment, we are in a, in a time, really interesting time in terms of the regulations changing around the use of some medicinal fungi. And we're seeing some incredible advancements and some real successes in the early days of looking at how these can help, particularly things such as post-traumatic stress syndrome, end-of-life angst, depression and similar things. I'm not sure specifically about cluster headaches and migraines, but I think that would be a really good place to start. Mm. And we have another question that came in. You should see the list of questions we've got for you guys today. Oh, it's good. pretty impressive. Um, this is this is from Darcy, who's 10, and he wants to know, do fungi have brains? <laughs> wow, great question. Look, they're kind of like a decentralised brain. Mm, inside <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. They don't have a nervous system like we do that has a brain and this whole system of, of interconnecting nerves, but it's one big, oh, wow, that's a really good question. Decentralised mass, the whole thing is, is intelligent. Trust <laughs> a 10-year-old to ask that question, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard using, you know, there's always scepticism and using words like intelligence when it comes to fungi, but I reckon they've got it going on. <laughs> I think they've got a lot worked out. Well, they're some of the oldest um, creatures on the planet, right? Indeed. I mean, they at least go back to the Devonian, which is 500, uh, what, 500 million years plus ago, where we think, you know, some of the... So, so there, there would have been fungi when the dinosaurs were running around, so... Yeah, absolutely. So we're going back to, yeah, probably probably the lichens were among the first. So lichens, of course, being a, a composite of, of algae and fungi and yeast together, and we think they were probably the first fungi on the land that started breaking down those primeval soils, creating those first... So I bring those, those primeval rocks creating the first soils that then became inhabited by other organisms. So very ancient, very old and pretty switched on, I'd say. Mm-hmm. So that, that supreme intelligence of um, the wisdom of ecology, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, maybe that's a good place to let you get on your travels and... Uh... I think we should ask the same question of Peter. Yes. So thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Alison. Have a safe drive and, and good luck with all the other lined up meter interviews I know you've got going on. So it's been a real pleasure to have you back mm. on the show. And, and you've got uh, you've got a talk this afternoon in Canberra, I believe, and a couple of workshops coming up. Indeed. So we're at Wildbark tonight in Throsby. There's a, a talk there and then the next two days there's also workshops. I think there's still a couple of places available if anyone's interested, so to contact the Wild Bark Centre in Strasby in the ACT. Yep. Wonderful. And how would we find you and your work? Have you got a website? Yep, so on my website there's about 50 events listed over the next couple of months in New South Wales Week and ACT, and we'd be thrilled if anyone would like to join us. There's forays, seminars, workshops and other events as well. Oh, fantastic. And that would be through www.alisonpolio.com. So that's A-L-I-S-O-N-P-O-U-L-I-O-T.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Wonderful. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show again, Alison. Um, and uh, have a, a great journey on your way to Canberra. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much for your ongoing interest in fungi and I wish you all a wonderful autumn. And do take a look at Alison's book, Underground Lovers. It's just a spectacular visual feast of all things fungi. So that was mycologist, natural historian and photographer, Alison Puglio. And Peter, sorry we sort of kept you on um, hold there for chatting with Alison. We only had a limited amount of time there, so we wanted to make sure we got a little bit in there. So Scotty had put that he'd like to ask the same question to you. Yes. Do, do fungi have a brain? Do fungi have oh, Excellent question. Unfortunately, I couldn't hear um, uh, Alison's response that well. It was a little bit patchy for me, but nonetheless... Look, I'm sure, I'm sure she said something erudite. Um, now, that's a really interesting question. I mean, 
slime molds, which aren't really aren't actually fungi, but um, you know where they sort of train these sort of apparently simple creatures to re to respond to um, you know an adverse event like, such as um, salt. They don't like running over salt, and so they make a little bridge of salt in the food source on the other side, and eventually they sort of build up a tolerance and then uh, get over this. Uh, very salty, uh, terrible fruit and get to the food source. And then if you take sort of some of that slime mold and, and uh, uh, make progeny from it, then that progeny will have a memory of, of that um, uh, sort of ability and they can uh, get past uh, sort of what would otherwise be an adverse barrier. So it's, it's interesting sort of, uh, you know, that happens in one generation. So that's sort of a, a curious phenomenon that might just be a phenomenon, but it, it's, it's, almost speaks of some sort of a learning um, in, a, in a quick way. And then when it comes to obviously the, uh, the wood wide web, which is now on the tips of everyone's tongues, um, uh, thanks to a lot of media around, around the world. Um, look, I mean, that's, that's that, that the mind boggles how much is happening under the ground with um, uh, exchange of, you know, sugars from trees for nutrients and protection from fungi and, you know, Alice and might have mentioned this already, you know, one species of tree will pass sugar to a fungi and say, don't keep this sugar, pass it on to my progeny tree or pass it on to the neighbouring birch tree, or but not the older or, you know, one species or another through this interconnected web under the ground. So there's, there are sort of decisions that are seemingly involving um, trade-offs and altruism and uh, almost stock market type things. But that's, that's, uh, but anyway, we're just, it's almost like we're only scratching the surface of understanding nature, would you believe? Mm. I don't think it's fascinating that you've got a slime mold in one generation that's going to build resilience and then remember um, what it learned. So this is, is it like a genetic thing, do you think? Uh, look, you know, that's—I don't know. I'm not sure. It's just—it's a—it was an interesting study, and um, again, the mind boggles. But um, yeah, it's—it's it's, uh, who knows? Who knows? There's, um, and that's—that's that's one of the things that um, I guess we are interested in promulgating, sort of science of mushrooms, you know, mycology, um, whether it's foraging, whether it's mushroom growing, whether it's um, how do we not inoculate wood logs in your garden so you have sort of a, a seasonal uh, cropping um, in amongst your pumpkin patch, um, or, you know, their role in the ecosystem, or even novel applications for um, humans to make biomaterials and that sort of thing. And part of the way we, we do that is to um, run education courses for schools, land care groups, and basically anyone who will you know, wants to listen to us. And uh, in 10 or 20 years' time, some of those folk will grow up and they will be uh, delving further into these questions that we're, we're posing right now mm. and doing cool things with fungi that we can't imagine. Yes. So one of the things that I know you've been involved in is the creation of mushroom leather. What actually is mushroom leather and how do you use it? Well, uh, the, the, the prototypes that we've made so far over the years, they started out as being pretty thick, um, ungainly yoga mat type uh, pieces. So basically we take the root system of the, uh, the fungus, the mycelium, and we grow it on a waste product like paper or coffee grounds or something like that, and then grow it in flat sheets. The, the mycelium, the root system, uses that as a food, and in doing so it grows all around the paper, through the paper, consumes the paper, and eventually turns that paper into itself. And uh, 
uh, you know, much like when we eat, a, you know, an apple or a piece of cake or whatever, it goes into our stomach and it becomes our ourselves eventually. The fungi are doing that, but they just, you know, do it in situ, whether they grow all around it and into it. Into it. So this creates sort of a, a um, whatever shape we want, whether it's a box shape or a mat or something like that, it's for the purpose of mushroom leather. That's a flat mat, and after it's bound together by the mycelium, then we harvest it and cure it, and resulting sort of in a, a malleable piece, something akin to leather, and often with some very uh, you know, delightful patterns on it as well. You can get sort of all, all sorts of uh, coloration, uh, much like leather has its own natural sort of imperfections and patterns. And um, yeah, and then in terms of what you do with it, well, you could potentially use it with, as a yoga mat, but in the last few years we've been uh, whittling it down so that we can get pieces that are basically about a millimetre in thickness and still reasonably robust and, and durable. So uh, several years ago we were involved with the Orange Rules Festival in CIT and uh, someone used our larger yoga mat type pieces to sew a, a handbag out of uh, mushroom leather and um, that was quite the challenge. Uh, they really needed their, their strongest thimble on their thumb to get the needle through, through this thick piece of leather. But the pieces we have now are much more amenable to uh, making into designs and um, that's the next step with CIT to sort of provide them with, with some of these uh, uh, daintier pieces and in terms of what you can do with them, well, I guess uh, potentially clothing or um, handbags or little wallets or something like that, or, but probably not motorcycle letters at this stage. Right, but we could make potentially make shoes because, you know, they've probably got as much resilience as a piece of light canvas, right? Yeah, look, potentially. I mean, that's, that's the whole purpose of this, exper- this sort of experiment is to... Is to uh, get a gauge of what types of materials we can get because it's anything from sort of a, a leathery type thing through to neoprene through to cardboard and of course they, they might have a, a variety of um, applications so uh, you know mm, and did, that's uh, something for the future. Do different species have different uh, physical sort of yeah, features absolutely, I guess? Absolutely, mm. yep. So we've we, we've tried a, a whole range of species from you know some of the common edible ones to um, like oyster mushroom and, and even shiitake and that sort of thing. Um, and some of those are just not much chopped. They don't. They sort of don't have a bind together that that well. But a few of them uh, are really great and form sort of these this sort of tough uh, network. And uh, but we focus a lot on the the hard woody bracket fungi types that you see as a shelf mushroom on a growing out the side of a stump or a tree, they tend to have a, a harder fruiting body, the mushroom, and so the mycelium ends up um, being a little bit more rubbery or woody uh, and lends itself to these sort of properties. So, we, yeah, we're working with uh, different native isolates and, and um, yeah, trying all sorts of things, but then the other overlay to the end product is how you grow it, what you expose it to during the growth phase in terms of oxygen, carbon dioxide, uh, nutrients, temperature, and then also the post-harvesting processing in terms of how you cure it. So, yeah. mm, and I guess it's not a, not a new idea, is it, to, to have these? I think Paul Stamets has got a, a, a mushroom hat made by some elders in Romania um, out of mushrooms. Yeah, that's apparently has been 
happening for generations and generations. And so they ha harvest the uh, the amadou fungus. And um, I've, I've not seen this myself, but um, yeah, apparently they can they can sort of uh, they've got sickle like knives and they can uh, sort of slice off layers and then beat it into sort of a, a felt mat. So it's sort of almost like a felt. Mm. And um, yeah, we've been mucking around with biomaterials for the last decade or so, and more and more so. If you if you look on the internet, there are, there are places all over, around the world um, uh, you know, exploring this sort of concept. I just have to share. We just had a post come in from a listener in Canada, and they said they were foraging, and they just randomly found a truffle, and they've taken a picture of it for us. <laughs> so that was um, fascinating that they've been looking for two years and they just found a truffle. So um, with the um, mushroom leather, um, you know, I'm thinking of things like these shows where you go out and you have to survive in the wilderness and say you had some mushroom leather products. Could you possibly consume them or are they past the point of consumption <laughs> at that place? Yeah, look, that's, um, that is something that we've, we have chatted with people before about. So, you know, you could, you could have your uh, whatever it is, your, your shopping bag or your, your T-shirt or whatever it is, and uh, when you get sick of it, you could eat it. But, um, yeah, it would be, I mean, we, we experimented with a range of um, post-harvest curing methods um, drawing from all sorts of uh, tanning methods, including some sort of more caustic traditional chemicals just at, at the beginning just to sort of uh, have a comparison of how things might work but we've moved towards using just um, you know food grade you know organic uh, materials so that yeah, in principle uh, the whole thing could be eaten but um, that might be uh, up to the uh, up to the uh, person wearing the uh, t-shirt or the uh, socks or whatever as to whether they want to do that um, <laughs> might need a bit of cooking <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably the uh, the, the more uh, common course might be just uh, putting it into your compost and uh, letting the worms have a feast. Yeah, well, you could bring back the old saying, "I'll eat my hat." <laughs> you literally, exactly. Right. exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's where it came from to start with. Yeah. So when I go through my pile of salvaged building timber and find a bit that's been wet and it's got mould on it, is that the end of it for that piece of wood? when it's in that state is it an anaerobe or is it an aerobe is it need the air to make the process happen or can it do it as an anaerobe did you say it's an anaerobic yes is it anaerobic in that process
slightly different. Um, that's sort of more the domain of the um, bacteria and some other organisms. But um, fungi will, like us, you know, they need the oxygen and, and uh, breathe out carbon dioxide, but they can penetrate quite deep into the, the middle of a, a wood log and grow and survive in there. They can also grow, um, one of the things we, we sometimes do to, to propagate our, our fungi is to grow them in liquid culture. And um, oftentimes that'll be in one of those conical shaped flasks that you see in laboratories. Um, and um, they'll be on a shaking device or you'll have little little magnets that whirl around inside it. So that it, it um, sort of basically agitates the water much like you would for a fish pond, you know, where you, you run a fountain through. So mm. there's always oxygen in the water. So that optimizes the growth of the fungi. But you can also grow them statically and you get a layer of fungus growing on top and then the fungi will grow underneath throughout the liquid. And it still grows, albeit slowly. And I guess part of the function of that is the fact that the fungus is a large spreading organism. And so it can have, um, if it's growing through a, a log in the forest, the bits that are closest to the bark and the outer of, the, of, the, of there, you're getting access to more oxygen and then presumably as you get closer to the core of the wood you'll have a, a, a diffusion gradient of uh, which will become much more anaerobic um, but the fungus inside that will not actually be an anaerobic such but it's drawing oxygen where it can slowly so um, they can they can be sort of cooped up with very little oxygen and still survive um, slowly. Mm. And what about as a building material? Could they just replace the wood? Yeah, that would be a thing, wouldn't it? If you have a, um, if you imagine that if you had, if you found your mouldy piece of wood that's been eaten by one sort of fungus and perhaps put another type of fungus on it that um, beefs it up again and strengthens it, that, that <laughs> could be a concept. But you'd, you'd want to be, you'd want to do some good testing for that. Oh, you would. Embark <laughs> on that project. Having said that. Um, I mean, we we bumped into um, some folks in Melbourne who were um, doing uh, doing some tests apparently with making basically bricks out of fungus, and then they uh, measured how much how much weight could go on top of that or force it would take to break that, and it was apparently they said in the in the order of the same as concrete, so you can get stuff that's quite hard. Um, so that we could have like our own organic 3D printers in the fungi kingdom, right? Yeah, indeed, indeed. Because well, if you can train them to, to 3D print houses these days, yeah. it would be great to set something up with um, a real mushroom uh, house, mycelium as well. Yeah, that would be amazing. So not straw bale anymore. We'll be having you know the full-on mushroom house walls. Mm. How, how would that go with fire? Do you know? Do they burn? Yeah, look, that's that's um, of interest. We again with some of our. Um, School incursions that we've done before, we've we've um, mucked around with small scale um, models of houses and bridges made out of fungi, and then um, and then measuring sort of the how much weight can go onto it before it you know breaks or bends, and um, how wettable it is, whether the water sinks into it, whether it has a hydrophobic or phyllic um, surface layer, whether the water beads on it, and one of the popular experiments, but uh, sometimes uh, not condoned um, immediately by the, the teachers or the risk assessments, is how flammable it is. That's uh, kids are always up for that sort of test. And yeah, look, in my experience, uh, some of them will burn, um, you know, like a dense balsa wood, but others are somewhat 
tartan. So that's an interesting area of uh, exploration as well. Wow, there's so much to uh, explore, isn't there? Well, it's sort of like yeah, the greatest like, untapped resource, right? This, you know, the whole mycelium in the soil taking over large areas of land on, um, you know, areas where they've done regenerative farming. They're discovering, you know, the health of the soil returning because of the mycelium mats underneath the soil. So it, it's it's a hugely untapped resource. Like it sounds like that there's potential for this to go in so many different directions. Yeah, look, there's a, there's great potential and, and you know, the, the, um, everything from just simply learning about fungi for our own edification and understanding the broader world and the interactions with the ecosystem and then harnessing that for, you know, the, the benefit of the things that humans do, like grow, growing crops and things like that. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a group, um, Soil Sequest, they do um, use sort of a, certain types of highly melanised uh, or fungi that produce these highly melanised structures in the soil to sequester fungi and also produce a pasture crop crop for, um, you know, animal husbandry and that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, there are medicines from fungi. Uh, it's it's um, Penicillin whole, is, isn't it? Um, you know, the, the, the traditional Asian sort of medicines, a lot of the, the fungi from there are becoming more popular um, now in the, in the Western world. Um, but I guess hitherto they've, it's been sort of not part of the uh, conventional, uh, you know, pharmaceutical or med- medical world. But but if you think about it, look, you know, fungi are, are under the soil. They're exposed to all sorts of um, uh, bacteria and viruses. Their, their biology is closer, notionally, to animals than to, to plants. So a lot of the uh, their medicines that they're producing to, to fend off these, these uh, critters are useful for us as well. And there are some classic examples like cyclosporin, um, penicillin, things like that that are derived from fungi. So um, this is sort of the, a, a, a good a good time. I'm sure there's a, a bunch of research being done around the world to, to see what other useful medicines there are, let alone um, other you know compounds like flavorings and uh, you know different foods and protein sources. Um, yeah, look, you could go. The, 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 the world is uh, the fungal future is just starting. I think it's, yeah, a, it's a great time yeah. for for mycologists. Yes. So, what is the difference between a mushroomist and a mycologist, and where do you sit on that, Peter? So, what's the difference between a mushroomist and a mycologist? A mushroomist. Yes. Well. Good question. I guess a mushroomist might be a recently um, uh, coined term. Who knows? Um, Alice and I have had um, Alice and I had interesting discussions in the past about what it what it takes to be a mycologist. And you know, I class myself as a mycologist based on my wealth of experience in different activities, uh, researching and growing mushrooms since the nineties. Um, but then we, you know, there are different schools of thought about. You know, I think Alison often calls herself an ecologist, um, but um, and and we, you know, in the past we had discussions about whether what what level of say taxonomy or um, credentials you need to be to call yourself a mycologist. But you know, in a broad sense, you know, mycology, mushroom stuff. If you're doing that, I guess you know, up to the individual as to whether they call themselves a, my, a mycologist. That's yeah. Right. Now, the reason I ask that question because I'd often heard a lot of mushroom foragers refer to themselves as mushroomists. So I was just yeah. curious if it was just yeah. more of a, a less of a scientific approach and more of a maybe an Epicurean approach. Yeah, maybe the 
or um, you know someone who who uh, grows rather than uh, actively researches and is a taxonomist or something like that. Mm. You know, they're all just labels, aren't they? Yeah, they are. <laughs> are there any courses that you can do out there to to become a mycologist? Is this a thing in the university or? that you have a like a way developing a mushroom zoo so you've got your own sort of tissue culture bank and you've been collecting cultures from around the world um are mushrooms at risk of certain varieties mushrooms at risk of being endangered like we have you know endangered species list for our animals but are there um efforts to preserve potential fungi strains that might be endangered that would be a great loss to our ecosystem yeah look the it's broadly the the fungal um Kingdom or kingdom or um, is, is analogous to sort of plants as well. So you know, plants you've got endangered species, you've got weedy species, which uh, that's sort of a contextual term as to something whether something is a weed or not. And similarly, um, you know, and more rare ones or common ones. Same with fungi. Uh, you, you have sort of the common ones, and then you you also have you know we've got some weedy ones as well in, in Australia. Um, and and then you've got some that are endangered. So there are there's um, I think there's a quite an interesting one called the tea tree finger fungus that um, Sapphire McMullen Fisher is working on, and or um, doing some research into. And that one's quite a rare rare fungi. That's not anything um, to do with the dead man's fingers fungi, is it? The one that looks like a dead hand. It looks like it's like, you know, the day of the dead and they're coming up out of the graves. It's like it's really quite quite disturbing. If you didn't know what it was, I'm sure it'd give you a bit of a shock. Change that to zombie fungi. Yeah. yeah.
so with the um the sort of the mushrooms that you're growing like there's a whole other side of mushrooms it's not just the study of them and how they infect the environment but they're also a fabulous consumable right so that you have a whole um side to fungi co that's more around the edible um category of mushrooms right that's right yeah so we we grow uh, different varieties of mushrooms sort of the, the, the mostly sort of the, the a lot of the southeast asian ones but ones that are also native to australia as well that, that grow on wood and straw so the oyster mushroom shiitake um which people be familiar with and then some of the still rarer ones at this stage but we'll we'll um, make them more popular soon the nameko uh, golden anoki chestnut mushroom um the lion's mane mushroom is a popular one these days that's sort of the one that looks like a white pom-pom um looks nothing like a mushroom but it's it's um quite spectacular grows quite well and and people talk about it tasting like seafood which well wow. use your imagination it is, is is quite like that but it has sort of the same um striation that when you pull it apart it sort of has the same sort of flesh as a crab so people make sort of vegan crab cake out of it and um yeah it's a great eating mushroom and then there are a whole heap of others that are yet not in the australian market but uh, eventually will be my target is another beautiful one so we're all about bringing new types of mushrooms that are incredibly delicious the to the consumer and um and also providing them with um you know if people want to grow them at home we make little kits where they can just put them on their kitchen bench and uh put a little cut in a bag and then the mushrooms pop out and you can chuck them straight into your fry pan and you did generously donate a um mushroom kit for uh, one of our lucky listeners on the show we do have somebody that has won that so i'll pass on those details to you before you um before you finish the call today. um, We've had another question come in, um, uh, and it's probably related to what we're talking about now. Are mushrooms classified as a fruit or a vegetable? (laughs) Or neither. Or neither, yes. Are they in a a, a class of their own? Fruit fruit and vegetables, they come from plants. That's the typical convention. (laughs) And fungi are in their own uh, classification of uh, being fungi, not plants. So they're, uh, you know, they were always um, lumped with plants back in the day, study-wise, because they kind of, sort of, you know, that makes makes some sort of sense. But the more we learn about their biology, and as I mentioned before, they're they're more like animals, sort of in their metabolism, somewhat than plant than plants. And um, that sort of uh, can be traced back evolutionarily as well. You know, they breathe in oxygen and carbon dioxide out um so really they're they're their own um kingdom or queendom and um but people do use and i probably did before use the term fruiting body yes i was going to say they refer to it as fruiting so um and that's that's potentially a bit misleading but but people do use the term fruit or fruiting body for fungi um but yeah it's not actually a fruit or vegetable it's a fungus and but the uh, the way that um, I guess the the analogy to fruit is that the 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 mushroom itself the organism is growing in the soil or under the ground or in a wood log and sometimes this mycelial network can stretch for uh, centimeters meters or even kilometers and that's analogous to a tree it's sort of the the thing that's growing perennially off, often not always but so that's the the whole root system under the ground is kind of analogous to the roots, the, the trunk, the bark and the leaves of the tree. 
yeah, I guess where a, a fruit will carry seeds and then the, the mushroom will carry spores. Exactly. You must be a mycologist or a mushroomist. <laughs> I think Scotty's got a little grow, grow up happening at his farm there. Oh, yeah, we're starting to grow a few on, on logs out at the farms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oysters we're starting with, but we'll, we'll we'll come up with a bunch in the end. Yeah. Well, if you want some shiitake spawn, let me know. I'll, I'll, um, I can you can use some spawn uh, because you can with the wood logs. I guess did you use the plug method where where you grab the the little or you get the spawn that's on little wooden dowels and then you drill holes into the log and shove in the dowels and that acts as sort of the seed for the to, for the fungus to then grow through the log. Yeah. No, we use the dowels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Look, well, um, yeah, if you need some more of them, we can we can make some up. Or, or the, the, you can also use the spawn as well. You know, it's it's basically just, I mean, the wood, the, the, the dowel is a conventional way of inoculating logs because it has a certain utility to it. You know, you can get an 8mm drill bit and you've got an 8mm dowel that fits nicely in the hole and it, it's, it's a good, you know, if you make whatever it is, you know, a dozen holes throughout a log, then that gives you a nice distribution fungus starting to grow through the, the wood log and it will be then producing mushrooms within six or six months, 24 months, depending on the species and other other environmental conditions. But by the same token, you can get, uh, you know, a handful of uh, living fungus that's growing on wood spawn or another substrate. And as long as that has some sort of surface contact or you're getting it into the wood log, that's a starting point for the fungus to grow into there. So there's there are many different ways to inoculate um, wood logs. So how many crops would you get out of an inoculation? Like once you've inoculated, is it sort of a self-perpetuating cycle? Well, they say that uh, every inch diameter of the wood log is equivalent to uh, the years of cropping you get. So if you've got sort of a, a decent size sort of, uh, you know, one, one metre long log of wood that's sort of, uh, you know, five or six or seven or eight inches wide, then, yeah, that could be cropping in your garden for half a decade or, or a decade, depending Fantastic. on um, how, how it holds up. And different tree species as well hold their bark on better. So, you know, if you use an oak log, um, then that'll, that'll keep its bark on longer than if you use silver birch or something. Like that has that, you know, flakier bark. But even as the bark, you know, falls off, the mycelium is still in there. It's just that probably other fungi and beetles get in there and it becomes a bit of a, a, a mixed community um, and and uh, the, the, the mushrooms will still keep on fruiting. So, yeah. But you see a lot of, um, you know, nurseries and things that sell mushroom manure. So what is that? Is that just the broken down log with the fungi when it's finished consuming the log? Well, typically the mushroom compost or mushroom manure that you, you get in the, in the garden centres is from the agaricus farms. So, uh, that's a slightly different method of growing. So rather than growing on straw or sawdust, the button mushrooms are grown on composted and pasteurised manure and straw. Um, so it's, you know, it goes through a pasteurisation system, so it turns into a nice compost itself, and then the mushrooms are seeded onto that that compost, and then the but, the button mushrooms grow out. And once they're they're done, then that waste becomes sort of a right. So it's a nice, one crop deal, a, right? Love it. 
um, yeah, we, we tend to fill our gardens with once we've once we're done with the, with the uh, grow kits or the the logs, we just chuck them in our garden, and sometimes the mushrooms pop up, and uh, otherwise they break down into a beautiful sort of humic, uh, rich uh, delight for all the plants and worms and things. And the other thing we do is actually deliberately seed the garden with sort of a living layer of mushroom mulch, so that then you can intercrop your veggies with different species of mushrooms. So, um, so you can companion plant mushrooms. So it's like a companion planting system with with the mushrooms and yeah, certain yeah. crops. Are there certain yeah. certain um, vegetable crops that thrive uh, with the mushroom companion planting, like more than others? Yeah, that's something that we've done a little bit of experimentation with, and um, certainly it seems to be the case. Um, there, yeah, this, uh, there are a few that um, a few that seem to be sort of good companion plants as well, and um, yeah, there's some. You know, like there's a lot of um, interest now in the sort of no big, no dig garden bed style, where you're just putting, you know, little sort of old rotting sticks and logs and, and various detritus into a garden bed, and then putting your layer of soil on top of that, and then all of that stuff breaks down, and then of course, you know, feeds the soil beautifully. So I'm thinking this could become an intentional thing, where you're putting certain strains of fungi logs into the garden bed as you're creating your garden beds, as you're actually creating a new garden. So with your crops, like when you've got um, something that's perpetuating, like you mentioned, the the logs or something that's going to continue to produce over a a long period of time, does the the food value in the mushroom change over time, like with with crops, or is it consistent? Sounds like you want to do a PhD, Zena. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just fascinated by it. Uh, 
uranium and germanium and all these little trace elements. And we yeah, we ended up working, collaborating with someone in Japan and we got some amazingly beautiful, incredible mushrooms, you know, really thick and meaty and much higher in the sort of polysaccharides and triterpenes mm. that, that are valued for their sort of um, medicinal uh, properties. Brilliant, because I know when you rotate crops, for instance, like you've got a, a grazing crop that you've put in for cattle or horses or whatever, and you, you rotate your crops depending on the depth of the, the roots, right, to sort of bring up the trace elements. So you'll, you'll sow loose in one year, then oats another year and that sort of thing. Is that the same with mushrooms? They sort of go through cycles where different varieties will grow on top of another variety in the forest or they tend to keep to their own area? Yeah, look, I mean, I guess the cropping in soil with the fungi is uh, something that's sort of starting to be more popular. Um, things like the wine cap mushroom, a lot of um, folk around Australia would be familiar with that mushroom now that you can plant into your garden. So there is sort of intentional cropping in the ground, which that lends itself to the concept that you've raised there. But in terms of growing, say, a shiitake log or a, a bag of oyster mushroom, it's sort of like a discrete unit. And so it's um, the, that, that concept doesn't really sort of apply to that, that type of thing. So it's sort of a contained, you've got a contained community, contained on the log or contained in the bag sort of thing. But I was thinking of it like in the forest, if you see, you know, a crop of, say, morels growing in the Pacific Northwest, would then another mushroom, I can't think of another one that, that springs yeah, to mind, but would it grow in the same area on the same log over the area where the morels are, you know, when the morel finishes its life cycle. Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, that's, that, that's that, absolutely, so you might get a, um, uh, something like a shiitake or oyster or another um, wood sort of, uh, you know, or a white rot decomposer growing in a log for a few years, and then as that degrades and it runs out of nutrients and it's, it's um, uh, got rid of a lot of the cellulose and lignin, um, then, um, then you might get it might become almost like a, a more like a soil. You know, sometimes you, you you can actually push your finger into a wood log and it's, it's quite crumbly and it's mm. becoming sort of starting to head towards soil through the various successions of fungi and beetles and microbes and bacteria and things like that. Um, and then you might get a, a succession of other fungi that are sort of more um, yeah, tertiary decomposers or things that grow more on soil. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm sure that happens all, all the way through the forest, this sort mm. of succession of organisms. Wonderful. Mm. So, um, a lot of the well, let's start with how how does a mushroom eat? How does the mycelium feed itself? Because it's sort of like an inside-out stomach. Yeah, pretty much. Um, um, yeah, we were having this discussion the other day because, in a sense, um, our stomach is sort of on the outside of ourselves. If you think about it, we're sort of like a a donut-shaped organism. It just doesn't, you know, sort of like a small channel through us. But anyway, that's by the by. But yeah, the fungi, they have their stomach on the outside of themselves. So they have all these cottony tendrils that go through the soil and work their way through the soil or the wood or the or even the rock that they're into. I mean, they, they have incredible turga pressure to be able to push through rock. And also they have this suite of amazing enzymes that can degrade, yeah, it literally yeah, eat rock um, or some, some species. Um, so basically, these fine thread tendrils—they're like a, a tiny bit of, um, you know, cotton or something like that, even even thinner—and they're working their way through the substrate. And all the while, they are covered in a very thin sheath of their own, like a little soup that they're exuding, that has um, enzymes that are degrading the food that 
sort of you know pH of nine or ten, but the fungus won't be happy about it, but it will slowly make its way through it because it has this tiny, however many micron thick layer of soup around each tendril that's buffering it from that pH. Um, and yeah, so basically, it just works its way through through the through whatever it's growing in, and slowly chewing up, up breaking down that. Uh, chemical chains sort of lignin or something like that, a very complex molecule, cleaving it enzymatically into, you know, into carbon dioxide, oxygen, um, all that sort of stuff, and then making it into itself. So eventually, if you have, you know, some mycelium growing through wood or paper or something like that, it, it eventually is converting all of that into mycelium. Mm. And so the a lot of the petrochemical pollution that we have around the place has a sort of carbon ring structure similar to lignin and yep. can can fungi figure out how to break that apart and absorb it yeah look that's that's something that i've not directly ex- experimented uh much with myself and certainly not at a research level but there is a heap of research around the world and apparently some promising results as you mentioned sort of that you know they have these sort of uh, Fungi that solved our plastic waste problem, wouldn't that be amazing? Instead of burning it in the incinerator at Tarago and putting toxic plumes out everywhere, you could have a a big fungi hill with the plastic being consumed by the fungi and turning it into something we could use in our garden. Fingers mm. crossed, huh? 
That'd be amazing. Mm. What could well, we use? I've heard there's a there's a group uh, looking at using fungi on the great big plastic patches in yeah. the oceans. Yeah. Uh, do you know anything yeah. about that? No, look, I, I mean, I, yeah, I've, uh, I haven't really followed that in depth, so and as such, but yeah, it's. I mean, wouldn't that be great? And mm. a lot of challenges there because obviously marine environments, uh, you know, quite saline. Um, you know, uh, anaerobic potentially depends on how choppy is, but you know, the depths. But um, as we mentioned before, you know, there are a range of fungi that can survive um, adverse environments and be tolerant to a little bit of salt or or low oxygen. And um, another another whole area that you know I'm, I'm not that familiar with is is marine fungi. There are a heap of um, extant fungal organisms. Uh, in the uh, you know in the intertidal zones on creatures and in the depths of the ocean and even within sea creatures as well. Mm, fascinating! Mm. I didn't know about that. So mushrooms under the ocean—that's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, mm. yep, there's fungi, fungi everywhere almost. Well, that's right. I mean, how how often do fungi grow within another organism? So that's an intriguing habitat. Well, I was going to say there's a beetle that actually has a fungi that grows in it till it actually consumes the beetle. <laughs> like it goes through itself. The beetle basically dies, but it's a mm. um, it's a, a symbiotic yeah. relationship. The classic cordyceps mushroom, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you talking about um, yeah. the, the science fiction thing? The cordyceps, is it? The no, it's real. Oh, okay, because I used that in the that um, what was it? Uh, the Last movie, of Us. Series, yeah, yeah, the Last time. of Us. Yeah. Um, yeah, the cordyceps is an interesting one. So that's that's highly prized. Uh, I mean, now throughout the world, but traditionally, you know, often in Asia and um, Tibet and that sort of thing, as a as a highly, you know, good for chi, good for you know your, your altitude sickness and all these sort of things. It's highly revered uh, medicinal mushroom, but that's just one species that uh, humans are interested in. But if you look at um, insect populations throughout the forests, um, they, they'll often will have. Um, Sort of host-specific fungi that pair with them. So, um, and I guess I, I have heard ecologists before talk about perhaps the reason for this is that you know if insects can breed quite quickly, so having a, a fungal pathogen is a way of keeping keeping some sort of balance in the forest. So if, if there's a, if there are a lot of a lot of insects suddenly, then the fungi will come in and uh, sort of take them out, and uh, you know there'll be some sort of pendulous sort of pendulum type sort of uh, balance in 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 nature um but yeah it's quite amazing sort of the spores will um you know all, all sorts of insects will be subject to this sort of thing they if they swallow a spore of the fungus then it will grow inside them until it basically consumes their body and grows throughout it much like the yeah the it sort of turns it into a, a mushroom <laughs> yeah i've actually seen the 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 metamorphosis of the beetles and it literally is like something out of a um you know, sort of a fantastical fairy tale book where you've got this beetle with mushrooms growing out of its back and then eventually it becomes a mushroom. Yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, you get little fruiting bodies coming out of its head and all sorts of fruits and things like that. Plus you get the sort of mind control element where you know, there's a classic uh, David Attenborough series that people might have seen where um, it shows some pictures of these ants that are consumed by the, fu- the fungus and while they're still alive, they're somehow implored by the fungus to climb up, up, up high to the top of a tree and then bite onto a leaf and then stay there. And that's obviously a really nice place for the fungal fruiting body to produce its spores and be carried throughout the wind onto the next patch of forest. So there's some strange interactions that yeah, involve... So that's like a, sort of a, a, 
a brilliant but dark intelligence there. You know, so you know, woe to us if Fungi ever figures out that we're a good host. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Oh, fascinating stuff. Yeah. So you also um, produce a lot of things for Fungi Co. that our listeners could get involved in purchasing. Like I know we've got a, a Fungi kit you're giving away. So if people would like to get their own Fungi kit or would like to. Um, try some of your other products um what sort of things do you offer and, and how can they access those yeah look um it depends um we, we've sort of had a little bit of a hiatus recently with one thing or another but we still do have some of the mushroom grow kits and we do a lot of the mushroom teas you know the lion's mane reishi chaga all those sort of things turkey tail so we have the um yeah the extract of some of these these mushrooms um we have fresh mushrooms, um, just depends on what we're growing at the time, and obviously the mushroom grow kit, so oyster, shiitake, um, lion's mane a little bit as well, um, just yeah, it depends what's available at the time, so yeah, if people are... And you're going to get the pom-pom, is it like the pom-pom so, mushroom you mentioned? There's like a pom-pom mushroom as well? You're lion's working? mane. Oh, that is lion's mane, yeah, okay. The lion's, yeah, the lion's mane, that, that pom-pom mm-hmm. one, yeah, that, and that's a fun one to grow as well, and so it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's one that you can grow, grow at home. So, yeah, if people are interested, um, get in touch with us or, um, you know, go to our website, Fungico, or, and if they're, you know, uh, I guess the, the radio station subscribers, then we could probably, you know, sort something. Yeah, sort they of can click on our uh, post for the show and there's a direct link to your Fungico on Facebook for that one. Um, also, yes. if people are interested in educational um workshops, uh, things like that, or joining a newsletter, do you have anything that they could um, connect you there? Yeah, look, at this stage, we, we are we're pretty busy with one thing and another. So this year, unusually, we're not running our foraging workshops or doing any of our sort of mushroom growing workshops at the moment, but that might change in the springtime. But certainly if people are interested, as you can tell, we do like to have a bit of a yarn about fungi, so that's... Uh, <laughs> One option to just cold call us and have a have a chinwag. The other thing is I've mentioned before that sort of curriculum that um, that we've made for schools. Um, you know, we used to just sell that as a package type thing with the schools. But I mean, we can if people want a copy of that curriculum, that's fine. You know, that's that's a starting point for people to get interested in. We can send it as a PDF or something like that. It's um, got a few different activities. As if you if you want to get kids or even yourself interested in mucking around with mushroom science. Yeah, because I did realise that one of our questions had come in from um, one of the homeschool groups earlier, so I'm thinking that they, that might be of interest to them to um, mm. do that as a homeschool group with your workbook. Yeah, yeah, look, send us an email and we can send you the send you the resource and that's the starting point and yeah, take it from there. Fantastic. And is there a better time of year to start sort of growing your mushrooms or inoculating your logs or um, putting things down in your garden beds? Yeah, look, there are... There are sort of um, uh, rules or whatever um, about that, uh, but and summertime's the most challenging just because it's so dry and typically the fungi don't grow as well. But the last few years with El Nino, it's been not much of a challenge. I mean, you know, yeah, it's just been like the west coast Canberra. of Canada, Pacific Northwest, and Canberra, right? Yeah, it sort of it hasn't been that hugely dry, long spells of you know hot, hot, you know, sort of dry air. And so we found that when we have our little mushroom kits um, around the house, they, they basically grow all year round at the moment. So, um, but yeah, and then again, when it comes to woodlog inoculation, look, there's a whole heap of science and stuff around when's the best time in terms of um, 
Brilliant. Well, we're just about out of time, Peter. I wanted to thank you for joining us on the show and to thank you for donating a mushroom grow kit to one of our lucky listeners. Um, I'll get in touch with you after we're off air and um, pass on the details and we can get that to the listener. Um, so we uh, just wanted to thank you for coming on, Peter Wenzel, who is a mushroom designer and co-founder of FungiCo, for joining us talking about all things amazing fungi today. Yes. Thanks, Thanks Anna. Thanks, buddy. It's been a real pleasure. Always fun to have a chat and, um, yeah, look forward to bumping into you sometime. Fantastic. Yeah. Maybe at the next markets we'll see you at Hague Park. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Peter. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at BehindTheLines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.